Colossians chapter 3 is where I would invite you to turn in, in the Bibles or your Bibles, page 834 in the church Bibles. And in just a minute, we're going to read verses 15 to 17 of chapter 3, although we'll just work through verse 16 this morning. By the way, there's only 66 days till Christmas. I looked, I looked yesterday on my Christmas app. Okay, let's read the word of the Lord, or I'll read, and let's, if you would please listen, and then we'll pray and ask God for his help. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. And as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's bow together. Just a brief moment of silence and then we'll we'll pray. Our gracious God, we we look to you now for everything. We pray for all men and women because you have taught us from your word that it is right and good to pray in this way so that we pray that all would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth as it is in Jesus. So Father, we would ask that you would look with compassion on us this morning and on the whole world that lies under the control of the evil one. We ask that you would cast out the prince of this world and as he has blinded the minds of those who do not believe. Make known your salvation, Father, throughout the earth so that all nations may praise you. And let those who live this morning without God and without hope in the world be transformed. And then, Father, be enlisted in your service so that every nation will experience your power to save. And it is that power, God, that we look to now. So we ask, God, that you would glorify your Son and yourself with striking clarity and authority this morning, so that every bit of us will be locked on to you. At this time, Father, this is our great need. This is a need local and global. And so we turn to you now looking to you as our only hope in life and in death. And in these words this morning from this verse, show us ourselves and show us our Savior and make this book live in us. In the name of the one who suffered and died for our sins and is alive forevermore, the risen and ascended and exalted King, our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. I think, I think one of the most um, telling descriptions of Jesus Christ 
is recorded for us in the Gospel of Luke the Evangelist, chapter 19, where Jesus is just a few days from his death and he begins to approach Jerusalem and in seeing the city, he weeps. And this weeping is uncontainable, it's audible, and it is emotional. And in this weeping, Christ says, verse 41 of chapter 19 of Luke, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Quite remarkable if you think about it, Jesus saying, if you would have only known what would have bring you peace. And dear ones, as we listen to the words of Jesus Christ this morning, does, does Jesus Christ look over Atasca County, excuse me, with any less affection or with any less words, if you, Itasca County, would have only known what would bring you peace? And, and as Jesus looks over her, looking over the vast majority of people in our context, and this should trouble us, congregation, the vast majority of people in our conduct context who, who is outside of his company and therefore inside his wrath, looking over the people who have believed the lie that says, you know, there's nothing I really need to do because after all, this is a fairly nice place with fairly nice people and, and surely everyone is in automatically, eventually, as long as they have some degree of sincerity or looking over those, believing the other lie that says, okay, that's fine what you do over here, but your way is just one of many ways to God, so, so you worship your way, and I'll worship my way, and you know what? We'll see each other at the finish line. Or perhaps even worse, looking over those sitting in the seats of the house of God this morning with assurances that are akin to the citizens of Jerusalem during the days of Jesus, who were so certain that they were so right with God that they crucified the Lord of glory. So as our Lord sees this this morning, is there any less concern here now than for those then? And is it not true in this this ultimate quest for peace, which every human being has need of, That so many will do anything but what they should do to have the peace they know they need. But in their rejection down through the quarters of time into the reality of death and the certainty of judgment, their peace, void of Christ, which they thought would be sufficient, will be found wanting. So whether it is peace that is determined to go merely down the road to financial freedom. So if I get my financial house in order, then finally I'll have peace. That peace, if that's all it is, will be found wanting. Or the peace which many have determined to be as a quiet and quaint life by the lake. You don't bother me, I won't bother you, and all will be well. But they will not bow down to the risen Christ. That peace will fail them. Or their lack of peace, which they were so certain that Christ was powerless and so meaningless in their kind of economy of scale so that even religious trinkets and religious superstitions and angelic and saint worship were looked to as the keys to the kingdom, even that will be exposed as a lie that came from the father of lies. If you, if you would have only known what would bring you peace. And I say all this this morning with a broken heart, an anxious heart, a contrite heart, and frankly, 
a guilty conscience that knows it needs to be more like my master and weep over people and get to them, get to them who have no peace of Christ in our context. Now in saying all this, when Christ Jesus is received as the peacemaker, peace with God and peace with each other is given, it is granted, and it is assumed. It is given only through the death of Christ. It is granted by gospel privileges, and it is to be assumed. Right? There's nothing that we need to do to add to this. It's, it's assumed because a command to let the peace of Christ rule in us would be absolutely cruel if A, it was only up to us, and B, if the grace wasn't given in the first place in the Christian's union with Jesus Christ. Therefore, what we were told last time we were together comes to us then as we think these things through as sensible and reasonable. As we were told from God's Word, verse 15, if your Bible is open, let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts and one another, if you would, in the church. And we said last time, and we'll say it again, for the church is one body. And we're all united to one person. And so we are united to one another. Consequently, our calling, our vocation, our business as a church in this setting is the peace of Christ. So that every Christian, and therefore every congregation, is committed to the rule of the peace of Christ. Let the peace of Christ rule in the body of Christ the church. This isn't exceptional. This is just to be normal. And the reason why we can let it rule and the reason why we are to, if you would, occupy this peace and let it rule us. And I make absolutely no apology here for repetition because this is the only reason why it is. It's because this peace given to the believer is a peace won. A peace won for us at Calvary by the suffering and death of Jesus Christ. So, so the power of this peace is, is not so much dependent on you and how you can, you know, quantify or qualify or categorize your life so that you'll have a peaceful life. That's not what's happening here. And the peace that is given here is not just, you know, reducing things down in the church to their lowest common denominator. And this is not merely the absence of hostility. I mean, we've said last week, we'll say it again, who wants to live that way? No. The reason why we can, verse 13 of chapter 3, the reason why we can bear with each other is because Christ bore our sins in his body on a tree. And the reason then that we can forgive one another, because frankly, as Christ was dying on the cross, he was forgiving others on that same cross. Therefore, it is only in being forgiven that we are able to forgive. Did you catch that? The reason why we can forgive others is because we, because we know that we have been Forgiven. Therefore, the justified Christian through faith in Jesus Christ has peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. An act of God making peace. Imputed righteousness and imputed peace. And so the logic is very plain. It's very plausible and it's absolutely wonderful. Right? Because, because we want to be at peace with each other, don't we? Don't we want to love one another? I mean, we want to be really, really happy to see one another and work side by side together and we would gladly rattle the routines of our lives when she is hurting or he is hurting in the body. But we have all known Christians who have been really, really good at doing their duty but frankly are really hard to be around. And Paul says, no, no, that should not be. None of that. You should bind up all in love. 
And again, the logic is plain. It's mind-boggling, unbelievable, right? Holy God. How is a relationship between a holy God and a sinful man possible? How is that possible? Chapter 1, verse 20. Peace with God through the blood of Christ. See, the Bible always sending us to Christ. This is why there's peace. Peace with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. So if that is possible, then the church of Jesus Christ ought to experience the same peace as well. That's the logic. Let it be. Let it be. Don't argue with the empire, the ruler, the Lord of glory, the giver of peace. The peace is won and the peace is given by Christ. So the peace, again, is not circumstantial. It's not temporal. The peace is eternal and it is to be the norm because the weight of that statement hinges on Christ. So as we think about those things, we are all one. Jesus Christ does not have any favorites here. Do you believe that? Because we are all his favorites. There's no ranking system in the church. At least I hope not. There's no depth chart, is there? Everyone matters. Everyone matters greatly. Everyone matters the same. And Jesus Christ matters most. John Stott on this verse writes, When Christ rules in the heart, his peace will rule in the fellowship. And as Paul writes about this peace of Christ... He goes on to write about, verse 16, if your Bibles are open, the Word of Christ. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now, as we approach this, this can't be just, okay, let's all just memorize more of the Bible sermon. I mean, you'd probably like this. We'd be out in two minutes. Wouldn't that be fantastic? We would be able to watch Face the Nation, have a couple of donuts, drink some coffee, read the newspaper. What else do you do? I don't know what you do when it's over here. Now, as you think about this, this is not a call to intellectualism or even just bare memorization, right? The Christian congregation is not simply a university, okay? The Christian congregation is not a place to kind of spew out how bright we are by how much scripture we have kind of shoved in our brains. The Pharisees knew an awful lot of the Old Testament, Word of Christ, then, which is to dwell in the Christian richly, is none other than the message. I mean, that's the word, word, logos, the message of Christ, the testimony of Jesus Christ. That bears witness to the very person of Christ. So I want you to listen to your Bible. I want you to listen to Jesus. This is John chapter 5, verse 39. You diligently study the scriptures, Jesus says. And the context there was, there was a man, 38 years, an invalid. He was healed by Jesus on the Sabbath, and the religious might are more angry that a man was healed on the Sabbath than they are happy that an invalid of 38 years was healed at all. So Jesus looks at them and says, you diligently study the scripture, that the, the sacred writings, the Greek word is graphis, because you think that by them you possess eternal life. And Jesus says, no, these are the scriptures, the writings that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Now, if you think through that, I think part of what it means is the word of God is alive. It's pointing to and it's part of the only life giver. I mean, this is how I think about it. So my wife, Nicole, would I rather have a book about Nicole or would I rather have Nicole? Right? A book would be fantastic. Right? I'd keep it on the shelf and have the best place next to all my Jesus books. Right? Nicole book, then Jesus books. But you know, at the end of the day, I'd rather have her. So it's very possible that one might have a growing intellectual ascent of the scriptures. 
but, but are much like the unbelieving Pharisees who took all that intellectual knowledge and jumped on the, hey, what do you say we crucified Jesus train? So that the good of the scriptures that points to Jesus Christ is perverted by a spurious reading. And if you think with me, that is not so much unlike our day where people take the Bible, twist it like a, a wax nose, and justify every form of behavior or, or any line of thinking or any line of living or any line of believing or any line of raising kids or securing finances and on and on. And all they do is take a scripture, you know, lick it and stick it to their document of this is God's will. You see, congregation, by nature... We are committed to ourselves. We need no special talent. We need no special disciplines or training to be committed to ourselves. And of course, when we open the Bible, we can see very easily that the Bible can be mishandled so that it becomes a book about us, a self-improvement book. When the Bible is a book about Jesus Christ, when the message of the Bible, which, uh, which the apostles preached and martyrs died for, right? Because I don't think any of us in this room would, would die over whatever biblical financial principles they are. I mean, I wouldn't go to that, the, the, the grave for that one, okay? None of us would. So the message of the Bible, holy God, sinful man, coming judgment, promised Savior, Christ crucified, buried, risen, ascended, it is finished. God's people now have a right standing with God. And they have a given work. And the work of the Spirit is still being accomplished in us. And so he's empowering the Christian to exalt Christ, live holy lives, even as they stand right and righteous before a holy God, guided by the Spirit, which we meet in the inspired, filled Bible. So the Bible is a message about the gospel, and the gospel is a message about Jesus Christ. So then the imperative that Paul gives here in verse 16, let, to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, it's not intellectualism. And it's far more than mere memorization. And he also puts to rest any kind of uh, mysticism or spiritualism. Because uh, what's humanity's great question, at least some of humanity's great question, is how do we hear from God? Right? How do we hear from God? And, and I think this is how it goes. We, we really want to hear from God when things are bad. So how do we hear from God? And, and typically sometimes when things are good, we, we're okay with it. We don't need to hear from God. So what Paul does, and, and we don't want to do this, we can't dismiss ourselves from the context Paul is writing to a people who are being told by the false teachers, there are many other ways one can hear from God. And that's being offered to them. So whether it was chapter 2, verse 8 there, false God talk, there was nothing more than human lines of thinking, how the world turns, you know, we did it, and we can show you how in five easy steps. That's human philosophy, chapter 2, verse 8. Or kind of unspiritual minds that were puffed up with idle notions. You know, I saw angels. I worship angels. I have special diets. I have special days. I have all these lines of living. I do this and I don't do that. And when I don't do this and I do do that, then I have the inside track on how I can hear from God. That's chapter 2, verses 16 to 23. Paul says, no, no, no. We must all drink from the same well. We must all feed on the same bread. The bread of life, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do you worry about what you're going to eat or drink, says Jesus. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be open. Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Be dressed and ready for service, and keep your lamp burning, because you do not know when the master of the house will return. Watch and pray, so that you will not fall into temptation, unless you change 
And unless you become like a little child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. But I tell you, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. I lay down my life for the sheep. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected. He must be killed and after three days rise again. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Now this is eternal life that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ who you sent. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me because night is coming. When no one can work. So as you think about that, is it any wonder that why Paul would take every chance he gets to stress the person and work, the sufficiency and the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ? So to me, this makes real good sense. And this is important. And Pauline thinking, there's no difference. There's no distinction between the ministry of the word and the ministry of the spirit. They're not separate. The parallel passage to this one is in Ephesians 5.18b, and it says this. Be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And if you look at verse 16, it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Be filled with Christ's words as you teach one another and as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your heart to God. So for Paul which means for the Bible, the coming of the word of God in the gospel, Logos, Jesus, is the coming of the Spirit. Because John's gospel tells us that Jesus was filled with the Spirit without limit. So the preaching of the word of God is the preaching of Jesus is Spirit-filled preaching. And as the church is filled with people who are filled with the word of Christ, then that church is a Spirit-filled church. Because you're going to have to work this out in your head. How could the Holy Spirit, the one Spirit, honor anything except his own truth? which is the testimony of Jesus Christ. And so how can the Holy Spirit give grace to and grant help to and glorify Christ unless the person of Christ is genuinely being exalted and preached and bowed to? And this becomes, I think, very important. If the church over, over the long haul is uncertain about Jesus Christ's own tr- truth or, and this might even be worse, if the truth of Jesus Christ, Christ is not central to the church, you, you can think this through. She'll be walking around in circles instead of heading to a destination. The church's pace will be meager, her work minor, her theology brittle, her fruit and her rewards minimal. Someone once said, all spirit and no word and people blow up. All word and no spirit, people dry up. Both spirit and word And people grow up. But, while that is a clever little phrase, biblically, it doesn't ring true. In other words, there's no gap between the Spirit and the words of Jesus Christ. The problem that people present is not presented to us in the New Testament. A biblical church and a spiritual church, biblically, are one in the same. There's no gap in the minds of the Bible. There might be gaps in the minds of the people, right? We've all had people ask us, are you a Spirit-filled church? Or you know, pat on the head, or you just a church. Which is, again, totally unheard of and counter to New Testament teaching. Therefore, where there is the fullness of the Spirit, there is the fullness of the Word of Christ. And where the Spirit is, Christ Jesus will be preached. And where the fullness of the Word of Christ is, there is equally then the fullness of the Spirit. 
And that's why Paul says, let the message, let the logos, let the living word of Christ, point number two, dwell in you richly. Right? Dwell in you richly. Now, the word dwell is a, is a nice little word. It's taken from the Greek language, and we use, they would use the word home from it. So the word is often used as a metaphor for hospitality. So, for example, make yourself at home. And that's the idea that's being expressed here. The word of Christ is to be able to make itself at home in us, right? It's where we live. It's where we eat. It's where we drink. It's where we find nourishment and direction and encouragement. If, if we are entertaining others, and I, I hope we all practice the ministry of hospitality, but if we are entertaining others in our home, we wouldn't say to them, okay, just stand in the entryway, okay? That's it. We're going to have dinner here. We're going to have a nice conversation here, but you just stay there. No, what do we do? We, we give them the whole house. This drives my wife crazy. I like for people to look at every room in our house. Like, just go in. I want you to look at every room. It'll take about 10 seconds. That's fine. You just go around and everything just, and in fact, if you like something, take it. No, no, just kidding. <laughs> Although my wife would tell you I'm probably not kidding because she's like, don't give that away. Okay, never mind. Sorry. Oh, did you feel that right there in the back? Oh, Lord Jesus, you have this whole house. Lord Jesus, every room in this tired old flesh is yours. Every choice, Jesus, every decision, every future plan, Jesus, is yours. You have all of me. And it is by that means that Christ's rule is exercised in our lives. Again, it is by that means the word dwelling in us richly is how Christ's rule is exercised in our life, which means this indwelling is a matter of precept and practice, but not promise, right? You, you can't get out what is not put in. That's why Paul and Peter would always remind, I'm reminding you this, I'm telling you this again, I know you've heard this again, but I'm reminding you because I want it to be fixed and fashioned to your minds like nails fastened to wood. You ponder them, you chew on them. We begin to, as the kids say, know them by heart. So what does the Bible say? Well, the Bible says we are to hold on to the word of Christ. Philippians 2.16. We're to hide it in our hearts. Psalm 119.11. Do it. James 1.22. Listen to it, believe it or not, preached and taught. 2 Timothy 2.16. That's how the gift functions, right? We're not all on our own. We need help from each other. Listen to it, preached and taught. 2 Timothy 2.16. And put yourself in places to hear the word of God. Matthew 13, 9. So there comes a question, right? Do we find ourselves in these verses this morning? From the front in sermons. Are we, are we there consistently on your own? Consistently in your Bible? Some type of reading program. You can go to our website today after this is over with. And you can begin a sensible reading program that you can, you can make yourself. Why? Because we're supposed to hold it. We're supposed to hide it. We're supposed to do it. We're supposed to hear it. Listen to it. Preach. And, and this is probably very important for all of us here. We are to handle the word of truth correctly. 2 Timothy 2.15 so that we won't be ashamed. Now as we think through this, what an ugly mess we make when we misinterpret our Bible. When we misquote it, yes, but when we misinterpret it so that it sounds more like us than Jesus so that we make it our servant instead of making it and letting it be our master. 
so that we fashion a life that is more suitable for us than more honoring to him. And so somehow in the whole equation, we always come out number one. Always number one when we read our Bibles. Yet, in view of God's mercy displayed at Calvary, what would Paul say? What is your reasonable response? Romans 12, 1. Ephesians 4, 1. 2 Corinthians 5, 1, 14 and 15. If we are convinced that one died for all, this is Paul's logic, and, and he died for all, then those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him that died for them and was raised again. So you see, handle the word truth correctly so that you won't be ashamed. Which makes our third point awfully important, I think. Let the message, the words, the message of Christ dwell in you. Number three, richly as you teach one another. Richly. It's a nice word. It means <laughs> super abundance. Right? Super abundance. So let the word dwell in you richly, super abundantly. So this isn't a trickle. Right? You just kind of little bit here and a little bit here and I'll take care of the rest. Right? A little there and a little there. I'll take care of the rest. This is a, this is a flood. Listen to Jesus. John seven thirty seven. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. It's a wonderful metaphor, isn't it? Come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Again, Jesus, John 4.14, he's talking to, to a lady who's had a horrible past and she's in a horrible situation right then. And he says to her, whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water, I love this verse, the water I give them will, will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Tell me another book that can do that. Tell me. Tell me another magazine that can do that. Tell, tell me another, another clever saying that can do that. Dwell, make a rivers of living water dwell up in me to eternal life. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly so that you're thinking Christian about everything, right? It was Richard Dawkins. He's, by the way, he's an, an atheist, as probably many of you know. He's very anti-Christian, but listen to what he said. And I think this is probably the main reason why he won't be a Christian. He says this, it's one thing to believe in Christ and God. It's quite another to live if he's the most important thing in our life. Did you catch that? It's one thing to believe in Christ and God. I mean, even the devil can do that and does that. It's quite another to live as if he's the most important thing in your life. And again, as you kind of let this ponder in your mind, to think Christian about everything ought not to be torment to us. It ought not to be torment, not if love is involved. This is a happy grace. This is a happy way because the one who loves me and the one I love is speaking through his powerful word. Let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Okay? We've got to remember our context, right? False, false teachers of Colossae, where were they heading? Well, essentially their life with all those little promises, with all those little bad little religious ideas, their life was, yeah, it was religious, but was very, very ineffective. And yeah, they had an ascetic life. Okay, I'm going to take myself and say no to this and no to that and no to that. But all that came out to be just self-serving, exalted flesh, and, and just kind of put Christ where he doesn't belong in the back. And then there was a life of do's and don'ts. And I'm going to exalt the do's and don'ts. But at the end of the day, verse 23, chapter 2, I can't even restrain my old, tired, dirty flesh. So they might have had a message, 
But I can tell you this. They didn't have the message. And I can even tell you this. They probably had a small audience because, quite frankly, their lines of living were strange. They were rude. They were too weird to speak of. And, and as you're thinking this through, do you think that it was by accident that Paul verse, put verse 12b there? He's telling the Christians, you know, you're chosen, you're holy, and you dearly love, i.e. act like it, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Do you think the false teacher's way of living would be like that? And do you think it was by accident, Paul wrote in chapter 4, verse 6, let your conversations be full of grace with just a pinch of salt? Because I, I get this picture in my mind, the more I study Colossians, that these false teachers just produce really weird people. Weird people who couldn't carry themselves in any normal way in the world that they live in. Now this quote that I'm going to give to you comes from T.O. Glover in his book, Conflict of Religion in the Early Roman Empires. And he's quoting a second century writer and that he just makes an observation about the movement of Christianity and how much it was affecting the, the whole society. And he's like big with it. Listen to what he says. Christians are not distinguishable from the rest of mankind in land or speech or custom. They inhabit no special cities of their own, right? That's the great Christian thing. Let's all get together in the city and we'll just wait for heaven. Let's all get together, right? They inhabit no special cities of their own, nor do they use any different form of speech, nor do they cultivate any out-of-the-way life. But while they live in Greek and barbarian cities, as their lot may be cast, and follow local customs in dress and food and life generally, Yet they live in their own countries as strangers only. They take part in everything as citizens and submit to everything as strangers. Every strange land is native to them and every native land is strange. They marry and have children as everyone else. They have meals in common but not wives. They are flesh but they do not live after the flesh. They continue on earth but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the laws ordained, and by their private lives, they overcome the laws. In a word, and this is wonderful language here, what the soul is in the body, that is what the Christians are to the world. You get that? What the soul is in the body, that is what the Christians are to the world. And, and as you think about this and think about Christ, Christ was for man and he was for humanity. And the only people that had trouble getting along with Jesus were the self-righteous people. I mean, I have to try to think this through when I'm at my desk and I'm like, okay, right now in the Christian communities, ministry, 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 ministry. You get thousands and thousands of ministry. Okay, I understand that. But when you look at the Bible, it's like a convert as the gospel is preached. And then a church as the gospel is preached and taught. And then you go send out and you do that whole thing over again. And I think as, as the writer writes about this, I think that's what he sees there. There's like nothing really amazing about them. They're just doing what they're told and saying what they're told and living in light of that truth. And then pow, pow. Communities change. Whole lives are changed. And not all the monkey business say, hey, come here, look at us. We got this going on or that going on. It's just normal Christian living. Now, I have to think that through more. I, I got you. But I'm headed that direction. So that if we have any form of Christianity that, that keeps us isolated from the world as our you know, mechanism for success or holiness, we have far less than what the biblical requirement is. Because Christianity is not only corporate, it is not to be lived in isolation. It is a go and grow and go and grow religion. 
So Paul says, let the words of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach. The word means instruct, impart truth. Let the weight of the words of Christ be the weight of your talk. Christ, Christ, Christ. Teach, admonish. And that has the idea, it's kind of a negative slant to it. Exhort, you warn, you counsel people. Again, the weight of the word is applying the words of Jesus Christ. We have a wonderful saying around here, as, as iron sharpens iron, that's wonderful, but as long as iron doesn't cut, right? Sharp, good, cut, bad. So as we teach and admonish one another, sharp is good, cutting is bad. And so that's why Paul says, verse 16b, we are to do both of those with all wisdom. And what do we learn in chapter 2 of 3 of Colossians? That all wisdom is in Jesus Christ. Christ-centered lessons, Christ-centered patterns and principles for the life of this church as we teach and admonish one another the very words of Jesus Christ. So as we really think hard about this, and to be frankly, to be frank and honest with you, I, I was under much of... Um, a guilty conscience this week uh, just because I found myself, I mean, I preached to myself first and I preached to you and I found myself so guilty here. And this is, this is when I felt the guilt, this is a line that I wrote. There is to be no doubt whatsoever that a dramatic increase of the words of Christ being at home in us, being at home in you, Joe, will continually perfect the fundamental direction of your thinking and your living. Right? The words of Christ in us richly will continually perfect the fundamental direction of our living and our thinking. It couldn't help. So we become valiant people. We become noble people, brave people who are preoccupied with the glory of Jesus Christ. And we begin to look more and more like the Christ who walked the earth. So that their thinking is always go, go, go. Advance, advance, advance. Pray, pray, pray. Duty, duty, duty. Christ was this way when he walked the earth. And frankly, we're a bit easier to be around. And we're not so attention needy because we know who we are in Christ. Would the word of God, the word of Christ dwell in us richly? We would sing like Luther sing. Remember the line, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. And then the word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let good and kindred go. Let this mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom, his kingdom is forever. So as the words of Christ dwell in us richly, frankly, our lives will be more, or excuse me, less cluttered. Because we believe that we can't take any luggage to heaven. And I would say, as we think through this, many of us probably have no idea how impoverished we are about letting the words of Jesus Christ dwell in us richly. So it remains our responsibility to ask the Lord to show us. Then if we need it, then if we need it, we become like Moses. Lord, show me your glory. Jacob, I will not let you go until you bless me, but mostly Jesus. Yet not my will, but your will be done. So it's time to go. Let me close with a true story. There was a lady whose memory was failing. She was one of those voracious or voracious, or however you say the word, she was a big on memorizing the Bible. She could memorize big chunks of the Bible, but as time went on, she developed Alzheimer's. So that at the end of her life, there was only one scripture that she could remember, 1 Timothy 2.12, I know whom I believed and I am convinced that he is able 
to guard what I've entrusted to him for that day. And that was the only passage she could recall. And then later on, as time began to wane and she knew that the end was coming, she could only remember this, what I've entrusted for him to that day. And that's all she could recall, what I entrusted to him on that day. So then finally, as she was dying, she only had one word left in her vocabulary, and the word was him. Him. And she whispered it again and again, him, him. And loved ones, that's the message of the whole Bible, him. That's the summary of the Bible, him. That's the summary of Colossians, him, him. Our best thought by day or by night, him. In a world of me, of myself and I, him. Friday night at a bookstore, I I was in the magazine racks and I looked at the magazines and they were all shouting to me, me and us and you. And I was looking at the Bible then in my mind, him, him, him. Thank you for your attention. Let's bow together as, as we pray to him, to him. The word of God is living and active Sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts. It judges the attitudes of the heart. In the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to God be honor and to God be might forever and ever. Amen.